This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. xCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers, and that means you, my friend. The xCloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation, and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code BETA, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwildcutters.com forward slash energy. X. This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Willing Guys Startups Podcast. I'm here with Kelvin. How are you? Peter Hardy. How's it going, man? It's going great. You? It's good. We've had a, we've been chatting for a while before we actually started recording, and so I'm uh, eager to eager to dive into this. You guys have been on my radar for a long time. Tell it's, me. It's surprising that we've never met. I've met some of your people. Yep. At a variety of events and stuff, but you're you're on the coast. We are. We're you're on the you California. Know, we, Born and raised, like yeah. local, oh, you were born and raised, up yeah, there. local okay. yokel Bay Area boy. Oh, wow, man. Uh, and so, but I started coming here quite a bit in 2015, and now I end up here. What it seems like every you know every month or so. How did how did a San Francisco boy get looped into energy? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So, I was talking about this earlier with uh, with some of your colleagues. the The start for me was actually you look back at the Persian Gulf War. Right. Okay. So didn't think that's where we're going. Yeah, okay. it's a little. It's a. It's a deep cut. <laughs> yeah. uh, and my dad's a Vietnam vet, as I think okay. we, we talked about. And one of the things that was always troubling to me is like, why do we have a bunch of our soldiers over there in the Middle East? Like, what's going on? It's a great why question we, with war in general. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's like, what? What are we fighting for over there? And clearly, at that point in time, we had a real concern around energy dependence on what was happening in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and. For me, that was a big aha moment because I was like, well, why? Like, are there other ways? Like, why are we fighting over there for something that maybe we could get somewhere else? And so fast forward, you come to sort of, uh, I'm an entrepreneur by background. My dad was an entrepreneur. Like, there's a lot of history of sort of finding interesting things to build. I always, always intrigued by big, you know, industries that you could impact. And energy is one of them, right? And I started to sort of look through what was happening around directional drilling and fracking and other stuff going back, you know, 15, 20 years, just kind of building awareness, which is weird as, yeah. a, as a California kid. But it's a recognition that it's an incredible innovation. Both of those are incredible innovations. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe that had they come from the Silicon Valley, we'd probably have a very different perspective on them. I think yeah. there's a certain degree of bias around like, this amazing technology innovation came from you know somewhere outside of the bay and so maybe it's not as viewed as positively but i started to think about are there ways in which those changes start to increase our potential energy independence as a country mm -hmm. 
and looking at ways in which we could, you know, I could support that in my, you know, in my little way. And I happen to have come from uh, more of an investing background, but I'd also done a lot thinking about how do you run these operations more efficiently? How do you do things better? And had a lot of access to interesting software and sensors and stuff. So let's, let's dive into your background a little yeah. bit. Let's, let's expand upon that. Yeah. So where'd you go to school? I went to undergrad at Pomona College. Okay. So studied economics and public policy. So I come okay. from more of a kind of a finance guy, yeah. like, and then worked at, did some, uh, did some finance, did some- Investment venture, banking? Yeah, did, did I banking? Okay. Yeah, okay. I was like here in, sorry, in, in the US for a little while. I was in London for a year. Okay. Uh, did early stage venture. So I got really kind of, I think growing up in the Bay Area, you get this taste of if you're going to, if you want to stick around, there's, you see these venture capitalists who have done exceptionally well and you're like, hey, I could be like that. And so I kind of had a Sandhill dream to some degree. And so Ooh, I was able to- I would to love achieve. to, let's dive deeper into that. In the yeah. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I was able to achieve that. So I got to work with a really good early stage firm for four years, spent three which, years. Which, which firm was it? DCM or Doll Capital Management. Does okay. a lot of stuff early, you know, kind of early stage software, comm equipment, bunch of things. And had a great experience both there and then spent a year in China, right? So okay. I got to open up an office in Shanghai and spend some time in a lot of like emerging markets and starting to see what it took to build something that was actually successful. Yeah. Um, then I had the opportunity. I went to China, not really knowing how it was going to end up. Uh, hedged it with a application into Stanford Business School. Got in there, um, and so spent a couple of years at GSB doing uh, basically more startup stuff, thinking about lots of different ideas, even across you know sort of some solar things, some other really bad ideas that didn't turn out, and decided I was going to continue to invest because frankly we were having you know having kids and it was a risk adjusted way to do that so i did growth equity for a firm called tcv or technology okay. crossover ventures so okay. big growth equity firm and then through that experience got exposed to we were big investors in netflix and in facebook and did the godaddy deal and oh, like wow. got like up close and personal some with, big boy deals some blue yeah chip so deals. i mean yeah you know, billion dollar outcomes really good yeah. stuff and through that, you just kind of start to figure out like, hey, these are in, like, what are the patterns that work and don't work? And where are there interesting markets to go after? And so having done that for a while, I also was like, I really want to build, right? I don't, I think there's a difference between being a, an investor and being an operator is as, a, as an investor, you're kind of the editor, right? You can make comments on what other people are doing, but you're not the one, do you're not the writer, you're not the creator, right? And I was like, I want to, I want to actually create, build something. I think that's where some of my beef lies. Really? Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there is beef in that because if you are a creator, it's hard to sort of sometimes deal with the editors. Right? Especially like it's, yeah. <laughs> you're out capital raising, you're showing off your baby. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you're, you're having these conversations, many of which are great. Uh, and then some of which are just like the questions that you get, it's like, or comments, questions yeah. or comments. And then you like, and you know something about this person's backstory and it's like, you haven't built a fucking thing in your life. Yeah. Right. And it's like, and it's like, you've never been in my shoes. Like, you don't know what it's like to have to like yeah. do these kinds of things. What year, what year were you, like, what years were you at these two firms? So I, I started in, at TCV in 07. Okay. And I was there for five years. Okay. And then before, and so I was at, you know, I started at GSB in 05. Okay. Um, so call it 2000 to 2005 at DCM and then another five years at TCV. So quick side tangent and then let's, yeah. then let's go on. Do you feel 
like venture capital has changed since then and how? Yes, there are so much higher degree of specialization in certain areas. Yeah. I think you're seeing real domain expertise that you wouldn't necessarily like go back to 2000. You had some very broad categories. That it seems like that was always the case. Yeah. For, for a lot of the bigger firms. kind of generalists who, yeah. who knew something, but not the same level of, uh, of depth of understanding. I think that's one thing that's changed. I think the second piece is that, you know, there's, you've seen just so much more competition in the venture market. So many more people came in. There were a lot of LPs that were flooding into the space. Do you think it's oversaturated? I think today it's probably back to a little bit more of a rational spot, but it historically, like two, three years ago, absolutely. Like yeah. too much capital. I mean, no in, low interest rates are going to yield a lot of people chasing returns and venture has been a good source of return. So it's totally natural. It's just how markets evolve. But the level of, I think the level of specialization has changed. And we've seen the market, the way in which venture guys build their firms has changed. So I, you know, we were looking when I was at TCV, this when Andreessen Horowitz were getting started. Yeah. And they just had a different approach, right? They were like, we're going to, we're going to create, create all of this interesting serve, all these interesting services around that. We're going to be very supportive. We're going to just back, back those in that, like those individuals as much as we possibly can. And there were a bunch of people who thought there's no way that'll work. Right. And fade to the next scene, you know, you have an incredibly successful firm that's gone out and fundamentally changed the market. So you're, it's absolutely changed. It, it was more of a cottage industry in, mm -hmm. the, in, the in the 2000s. And now it's a mainstream, huge sector that has, that again, shapes markets, right? You know, you, you know a lot about this. Right? I feel like the, and, and maybe this is maybe some of my own naivety, but it, it seems like venture capital I have this like, I don't know, vision of what it was in the beginning of like mm. wanting to truly like early days of Apple and Intel, like wanting to truly help founders grow a business. And it wasn't just purely capitalist money driven yep. looking for returns. And so I had always thought, I mean, I don't, who knows where my life goes, but I'd always thought like, yeah, I'd be a founder. Then, then I'd maybe I'd go and pursue like venture capital, yep. right? It's particularly, you know, six, seven years ago, I thought that was going to be a great idea. And maybe it is, who knows. But it seems to me like now, more times than not, it's more about just, uh, it's a manufacturing process, right? Of just coming in and just startups and founders in, do whatever's necessary to spit returns out the other end. And it doesn't yep. really seem like there's a whole lot of like, care for the founders or the actual outcome of the company and i could be totally wrong because I'm, I'm like not in that ecosystem yeah. this is just like me interfacing here and there with with different groups and kind of just speculating about kind of the the sector is kind of like a whole but that's the way that it it, it seems like it, that it feels that way yeah this sector has a lot of different investors and there are absolutely individuals who are sharks and who are fierce and care only about returns and there are others who are very, in, you know, sort of friendly to st to startups and care about the founders yeah. more than they. And again, that's where you get the range, and that's why you know fit is so important, right? Who who is this person that's sitting across the table from me? Are they going to support me in the way that I need to be supported? Those are the choices you get to make when you take capital. If you're fortunate enough to have options, yeah. right? Not everybody has that. 
it's always been fierce though. I don't want you to think though. I mean, I, I know like Don Lucas was a guy who was early, early at Oracle. He was the chairman of Oracle. Okay. He was the mentor for this guy, Dixon Dahl, who I worked for it. And I got to know Don pretty well. And he was incredible mind, great at pattern matching, great at motivation and fierce. Right. And he, he was constantly working with Larry Ellison to figure out how to manage Larry. Right. And that was a situation where he was a, you know, he was a great investor. But he wasn't a kind, gentle, I'm just going to sit here and hug you kind of like individual. He cared about performance. And that's, that's, I think, what you realize today is performance matters. If you, can, if you are executing to plan, your venture guys are going to love you. And if you're not, they're going to call into question whether or not you should be in that spot. And if, you, if you're not the right person, they're going to try to find somebody else who can. There's a ferocity to that, but yeah. it's all about... That's the contract you sign when you take when you take capital. Yeah. And it's again, it's 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 capitalism, right? Yeah. And and it and it feeds people who are desirous of competition, who want to be able to win mm. and who want to be able to get the outside rewards of taking a market. And that's what I've found today is people like many of the firms are just really interested in I want a billion dollar outcome. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's if you've raised a billion dollar plus fund you need you need one or two of those to be able to hit at that level if you're going to return that fund mm. and that means that they're going to force you as an entrepreneur and me as an entrepreneur to push and push and push to get those big results and if it fails it fails right yeah and then it's on to the next one because they have a they have a portfolio do you have any like contrarian advice coming from that space for founders who are looking to take venture capital take as little as you can wait as long as you can until you have, until you know you have product market fit. Yeah, okay? 100%. And that's the thing that there's a, and I understand that everybody's in different situations, but if you can scratch and claw and wait, you're going to be a lot better off. Um, I, was with a, I was with a buddy who's a classmate of mine who was the founder of a company called Bonobos, which was a men's pants company that raised quite a lot of money, over $100 million. Oh, I know. And, I know exactly. Yeah, what so this guy, yeah. Andy Dine, he's a good buddy. And we were talking about, you know, if you were to go back, what would you have done differently? And one of the things he said was, hey, we probably could have run the same business with, you know, 50 people versus 200 people. And that would have totally changed the cash flow dynamics of that business. Yeah. It would have changed the way that we raised and our outcome and otherwise. And, and I think that's something to be really aware of is wait as long as you can, raise as little as you can, and just be, be fierce about trying to protect that those dollars as you are learning and as you are getting to product market fit. And then all of a sudden, once you're in the jet stream, great. Then you can read your, you know, you can read Hoffman and get lots of capital and go. But until that point, you're much better off to iterate and stay, stay small. Right? We, we live, we live through that. I mean, we, we, this was a side project that you were talking about for years. Yeah. 2020 rolls around. We decide to negotiate an exit from something else. That was kind of our initial seed capital. Yeah. Decided to leave something that was certain, not, well, more certain. Yeah. And, and do this thing that we love that was growing yeah. kind of uh, behind the scenes. We had some uh, investors lined up, uh, all just friends and family. Yeah. Right. COVID hits, all of them disappear. Yeah. But their trajectory that we were on, was very different from where we're at now, right? Mm -hmm. And had we, you know, poured a little gasoline on the fire, we would have shot off in a direction totally. that 
we would have diluted ourselves. We would have had a lot of probably pissed off people because yep. we really hadn't found like the product market fit. We really hadn't done enough work to really figure out what the business was going mm -hmm. to be. Yeah. Right. We were still way, way, way too early. And so I'm thankful looking back that that yeah. happened and things played out the way that it did. And, and now three years later, I think we're finally on like the exact course that we, that we need to be. Kudos to you. The exact course is a, that's a wonderful place to be. It's, it feels good. Yeah. It feels good when there's like, when there's no like little things that are bothering you and you're like, okay. Well, that's the thing is like, you're either in the jet stream or you're not. Yeah. Right. And when you're in the jet stream, you feel that pull and yeah. everything is kind of like, all right, I'm going and, it, and it's working. And until you have that experience, it's hard to explain to anybody else. You feel like a salmon. You feel like you're swimming upstream, like everything's exactly. going wrong. People aren't getting it. You're like, what's wrong with me? Right. What's you're wrong just with us? Outside, like, you're just outside it. And then it and clicks. then it hits. And, and you're like, oh, this is this is this feels good. Right. And that's the thing that most folks listen, most startups don't get that. Full stop. Right. Yeah. They never get product market fit. They'll try and try and try, but they just don't get there. So you have to stick around long enough and have the resilience to be able to keep going until you find it. And it's iterative and that's hard because everyone wants you to come in and say like, I had this brilliant idea and I picked it right from the beginning and executed perfectly and here we are. And we all know that that's a bald faced lie. Nobody talks right. about it though. I know, but this is why these are good conversations because yeah. the, the fact is there's all this revisionist history after you've been successful about how you called it and and how you were smarter and how you did all these wonderful things. But that's virtually never the case. It's almost always like you just kept grinding. So effort matters, insight matters, and there's a lot of serendipity, right? There's yeah. things that break your way. Like COVID was probably net positive for you. Oh, 100%. Particularly Whereas, for our, for, so for a lot of reasons, for the reasons that I mentioned, yeah. but also, you know, we've used content to, to build this community and people were watching their homes and nothing else to do but to consume content. There you go. And so that went from kind of on the map to like pretty much being on the map yeah. during COVID and then have been able to ride that wave kind of ever since. And that's serendipity, right? Who yeah. Who's going to put into their business There is plan? an element of luck. Yeah. There's and, definitely an element of luck. And that's what I talk about a lot, which is you have to understand that and you have to be comfortable with randomness. Yeah. Because I talked to some founders and they're like, well, I have this plan. Right. And 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 it's and it's all very linear. And if I you know, if I work really hard, it's going to work out. And you're like, yeah, maybe. But you have to get comfortable with the fact that there's so much randomness in what goes on that you can't control for. So you have to have the fortitude to work your way through that and to be comfortable with the fact that, like, you worked really hard, you did all the right things and it still doesn't go your way. OK, pick yourself up, keep rolling, because it's the folks who stop doing that who fail. Right. Yeah. If you keep going, you got a shot. The only thing stopping guarantees is that you'll never reach there. That's right. You That's know, right. it's right. and it's not easy. And I, I, I've totally changed. I've done a 180 from where I used to be whenever I would run across people who were like, yeah, I want to go do my own thing. I want to be an entrepreneur. And I used to think that I would like want to convince everybody that, yeah, this is a great thing to do. Yeah. Right. Now I will spend my time trying to convince them that they shouldn't do it because mm -hmm. if my words and the, the, 10 minutes that we talk can yep. convince you to not be an entrepreneur. You're, you never, you're never gonna make it in the first place. Exactly. You've given, you've given them a huge gift. Yes, it's right. like, go and do something else. And it's like, I don't do this necessarily because I want, I mean, I, I enjoy it, but like, I do this because I don't have any other option. Like, I'm yep. unemployable, I am wired this way, I yeah. can't go and work for somebody. Right. Entrepreneurship is like, it's like oxygen. Yeah, and you that's- know, I have to be creating and building something that yeah. energizes me, and if I don't, 
I just yeah. wither away. Yeah, I totally understand. And that's the thing that identifying that about yourself and being self-aware enough to be able to recognize it and act on it, like that's that's excellent. That's not where everybody is. A lot of people are hedging. They're like, I want to do this, but I don't really know. It's like, great, don't. Until you know, don't go. Yeah. Right. And then when you know, then you've got a real shot to be able to actually achieve whatever that, you know, whatever that entrepreneurial dream is that you have in mind. Which is weird to me. And I hate when people are like, oh, I've always known since I was like really little, but that's what exactly I'm going to say. Like I knew at a very young age that I never wanted to work for anybody. Mm. And I don't know why. Yeah. So it's funny. I, I held a lot of jobs, but yeah. even the whole way I'm like, nah, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny. So my dad was an entrepreneur okay. and, and I had a slightly different reaction because I think being the child of an entrepreneur, you get a lot of volatility. Oh yeah. Okay. My kids see it. So, so one of the things that I realized was I, and I was, they were very open. My parents were, my mom and dad have worked together. It's not to say my dad was the only entrepreneur. They were an entrepreneurial couple. So, yeah. and because of that, you're, you're, you, you have all the volatility. There's a no hedge. Okay. Yeah. So good, good year, bad year. You're feeling it. I realized that I wanted enough stability in my life that I never had to move back home. So my dad did a, he did a great thing for me. He said, when I was 12, he's like at 18, I'll pay for college, but you're never moving back. Okay. So you're done. I'm you're cut off, but it gave me enough confidence that I said, okay, I've got time to figure out what I'm going to study, what I'm going to do. And then I realized I need to make enough money to be able to never move back. So that's why I ended up going to finance. Yeah. So I took an investment banking job because I was like, what's the risk adjusted best option to maximize my short term revenue, basically? Yeah. Put enough away, got comfortable with it that I'm like, OK, now I can go do something. But I said, I never want to have to move back in with my parents. Yeah. So that was a great motivator. Right? <laughs> so picked up some skills along the way. I and think yeah, coming from from very um, humble beginnings, uh, we never were without, but you know, it's definitely yep. uh, you know lower middle class uh, for the early years. And I think seeing that and seeing how my parents struggled with certain things, it was like I I knew I never wanted that. Yep. Right. And so I think that that was like this um, this need to to rescue myself, mm -hmm. right, and to to have and seek abundance to where I never had to worry about anything yep. ever, right. Yep. And I never knew how that was going to manifest. I'm actually a very creative person. So like I had uh, played in bands in high school and yep. stuff. And then, um, you know, my, my father was a police officer for 30 years, recently retired. And uh, we were wired 100% differently. Yeah. Right. He seeks stability and, and knowing exactly how yep. things are going to like play out. And, and I, I thrive with risk and just kind of jumping totally. into the unknown. And um yeah, it was like every time that I, at an early age, was wanting to kind of pursue something more creative, whether it be, um, you know, go to like the Berkeley School of Music or go pursue filmmaking or, or graphic design, or like all these things that I was interested in. Yeah. That's a problem of mine. I'm interested in too many things. Mm, it's not a problem. And uh, it was like, uh, you'll be poor your whole life. Nobody, those people don't make money. And uh, and so I remember I uh, was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go and like like study business and then ended up, uh, ended up in the Marine Corps. Uh, shortly after that, yeah, got the discipline that I needed to yeah. be able to harness all of this that I was feeling, and I never, I never had any exposure. Like unlike you, I didn't, I didn't know that entrepreneurship was a thing. Mm -hmm. We had no family friends who owned businesses, really, right? Like startups weren't really a thing when we were kids, yeah. at least not to, not in my circles. Yep. Um, the only person I knew that even owned a business was like the local car wash, and like they were like killing it, but mm -hmm. like 
you would hear about all these like small business owners that were like struggling and stuff. And yeah. so, but I'd always like tinkered with things and I thought like inventing stuff was like, super, cool. you know, really, yeah. really cool. Yeah. So it's weird how it all kind of played out and it's weird how the creative side of me has been able to play into like this business and actually like building uh, all of this. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't even know how we got on this tangent, but I think this like self-awareness, knowing at a young self-awareness, yeah. awareness, if you have that and then you can channel it. Like, I think the discipline piece is a super important one as well for entrepreneurs is like you still have to have the ability to focus on something because yeah. if you're constantly chasing the next shiny thing or yeah. otherwise and you don't have the ability to say, I'm going to get this done and focus, then you're going to fail too. Right. I think for me, it was. um while you know we came from humble beginnings i had never faced any adversity in my childhood and i hate even saying that because a lot of people are like i had terrible childhoods and went through trauma and all this kind of stuff i didn't mm -hmm. I had a great childhood yep loving family even though they're divorced everything was good yeah. i never faced it's, to, to my detriment though because i never faced any sort of adversity ever mm -hmm. and so going into the marine corps was me manufacturing adversity and putting myself into a situation where i have no control yeah and so it forced me to either man up or yep or drop out drop out yeah. right and the last thing i wanted to do was go back and face my family and everybody all my friends and say that i wasn't like good enough to like cut yeah. it there and so yeah. that molded me into a person that i am today um really set me on the path and it showed me what the definition of true hard hard work particularly yeah. physically and mentally challenging yep. work was so it raised the bar for me and then also showed me what i was made of mm -hmm. totally. right and so i was like okay and then also it showed me what it's like to kind of work in the worst corporation ever, which yeah. is, you know, the military. <laughs> it was like, whenever I want to do this again. Right. So how can I take this and harness it into something? Yeah. And immediately, uh, I mean, hit the ground running as, as soon as I got out. Yeah. I mean, within within 12 months of, of getting out from my first company in oil and gas. Yeah. And, and that's the thing back. is like, I think that experience of pushing yourself to a limit and then getting through that limit, it, it builds like, this. Oh, it's it, confidence. It's it's confidence and it's also awareness about what's possible. And it, listen, I think a lot of people put false limitations on themselves. Oh, 100%. Right. And so once some, and you've had, I'm sure coaches in the past have like pushed you to an uncomfortable spot and then you get through it and you're like, okay, I can go. I, I can still go. Right. Yeah. I, I had similar experiences both on the athletic field, but also in work. Like I remember my investment banking job like almost crushed me. Right. I, I mean, it was. It was 100 hours a week and it was terrible and it was all of those things. But I picked up some real skills, but I also picked up the fortitude to be like, I can do hard things. Yeah. Right? And I can go through and I can survive longer than other people in these difficult environments. And I think realizing that, realizing that most people won't put in the work. It's easy to put in the work for a week, a month, yeah. maybe even a year, but to have just the intestinal fortitude yep. to like even in the darkest of times to stay on track towards your north star i think of a year i don't know why i'm talking about my life so much we're talking about you but no, i think good. about year 2017 um i had I'd worked on my first startup poured everything i possibly had into it yep um for two and a half years had commercialized something was successfully selling the emps they were using it i was hands-on with the customers yep. And myself, my partner, um, had a falling out. Yeah. Some things were said that I couldn't forgive. And it was like, that can't be taken back and I can't move forward. Yep. And so I said, See ya. I'm just going to walk away. Yep. And so I entered what I still perceive to be probably my lowest point 
for a year. But during that time, rock bottom, yep. I still had my eyes on the prize and what I wanted to do. And so I was working on the next startup. Yeah. I had no money. I had no investors, but I had a vision. Mm-hmm. I had a little bit of a network at that point. Right? Yeah. And so just staying consistent every single day working towards that. I mean, I was working two jobs at the time. Yeah. Just to keep food on the table. I was working one job and then I started a pressure washing company. Nice. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was personal training because I'd, I'd uh, known a lot about that. And uh, so I was doing that and I was, it was pressure washing on the side in between like sessions, cobbling together enough money to be able to, to pay the bills, but also be able to invest into to building this next platform that yep. I was working on. Yeah. And then we got to the point, uh, you know, 12 months down the road where we had the first investors. And then I was like, here we go. Here we go. Round yeah. two. You know, I had to eat shit for a year. That's right. But it, most people take those those things and they're like, well, I'm a failure or it's like, I can't do it or I, how am I ever going to like, I've got to focus on my family and stability yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which I had, you know, at the time. But just, yeah, being just so laser focused on. Well, it's also getting through the darkness. Yeah. Right. Like I think. But once again, that shows you what it, you're made of. And yeah, now yeah. I'm not scared. I could lose everything. And I'm like, yeah. all right, let's yeah. do it. And that's, but I think that piece though around like, okay, you've been through it. You understand, you understand how hard it is. And, and the darkness for me is like also just from a mental health perspective, which as a, as an executive and a CEO at a startup, like you have so much ups and downs. It's not talked about enough. Yeah. And you have to be able to talk about it. You have to be like, yeah, like there are times when I was depressed. Right. And like, there are absolutely times where I know my other colleagues have gone through serious mental health challenges. And it's part of it. And it doesn't, you can't mask it. You can't tell you it just goes away. It doesn't, it takes work, right? And you have to treat the mental health side like you do your physical health. You're, you know, if you've done personal training, you know that if you tear your ACL, like it's a surgery and then it's going to be a lot of rehab, right? I've lived, I lived at tore my ACL two years go. ago. So I've been to it. If you go through a traumatic event in business, right? As a CEO has a fallout with your founder, that's a traumatic event. Yeah. Right. So you gotta treat it that way. You're yeah. Like, okay, well, what do we how do I how do I resolve that challenge? And then what's my path to actually working my way back? Because I'm probably gonna have some real scar tissue around it and I need to rehab it and try to treat it like you would a physical injury. Yeah. That's the thing around mental health that again, it's a huge issue in this society. I think there's a lot more awareness around it. It's still very early about how we talk about it, but yeah. I think it's important kind of in forums like this to be open about the fact that, like, yeah. If you're serious about being a founder, you have to be able to get yourself through really dark times. Yeah. But if you do, A, you can inspire other people. You can help lift people up who may be also in a challenging spot. But you can show to others it's possible to kind of work your way through that. What have you found to be the most help, whether it be um, routines, whether it be uh, exercise, diet, whatever, to help you through, to keep you sane totally during these dark times the thing for me that is uh that i i got totally focused on first and foremost was sleep because i was very much a sleep when you're dead like rah 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 like caffeine all the time did that for like eight years yeah burn myself out well not only that like the more you study the impact of it yeah you weren't that productive you thought you were productive working 80 to 100 hours a week i'm sorry you were a puddle right and so your your ability to be effective with that is much more limited than you you realize. So sleep became something that I got very focused on. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm a big Peter Atia fan, right? Yeah. So like for me, that's kind of like that's one pillar. The next pillar is exercise. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's 
every single day, 30 minutes of heart pounding exercise, do it. Doesn't matter. Yep. You figure out a way to make that happen. And then you augment around it, zone two, this and that. Okay, great. But exercise is the second thing. And then the third is really like healthy relationships. Because if I don't have those first two, I'm not actually able to be a member of a successful relationship because as my wife will tell me, you're being a dick. Like mm -hmm. go on a run. Like yeah. get, get out of here, go do something. Like you, you're not processing the way that you normally do. Go get some exercise, go burn it off. Yeah. So, but being in a position where I can have those healthy relationships is the next piece that gets me through those really hard times. Yeah. And then after that, yeah, diet's important and other stuff. But I think about those as kind of like the three, the three pillars that allow me to have a good mental outlook on whatever yeah. I'm going to do next. If yeah. I'm losing one of those three pillars of like my stool is going to tip over. I agree with all those. So, I mean, those are definitely three pillars. I would add a fourth one for me that I found to be huge and whatever you want to call it, whether it be alone time, journaling, meditation, mm, yeah. some sort of like blocking everything out and being thoughtful and guiding yourself through whether it be times of anxiety or trials, tribulations yep. or whatever, or it could be even something positive around you know, goal setting, am I the person that I want to be? Yep. Spending time with yourself, mm -hmm. self-reflection, yep. self-awareness, whether this is with or without psilocybin. Yeah. You know, there's a variety of different tools that you can use for that. And yep. doing that on a regular basis. I yep. mean, every morning when I come in, I kind of like shut my door and I've got like at least 10 minutes to myself to yep. kind of really think through a few things. Yeah. Um, and I found that that and kind of really going through some daily gratitude yeah for sure right because i think that this is i think this plays into the mental health thing i think it's very easy to get caught up particularly as we're talking about venture capital right you take the capital you sign the contract you're building for some sort of exit yeah. right to be sold for an ipo or something and so it's very easy to think that happiness is a destination associated with an totally. exit particularly totally. if you've been doing this for I mean, 10 years now in various iterations and you've had a bunch of taking a bunch of L's yep. early on and then you, you start to have some success and then this is, um, things are going well. Yep. Um, but that's not the reality, no. right? Anytime you think that happiness is something, you get to something, yep. it's not, it's not. It, it's, a, it's a daily, you have to choose to be happy at all that takes place between these seven inches between your ears. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree with that. And what what I've found is like, you don't don't equate success and happiness, right? Mm -hmm. I know plenty of very successful people who are unhappy. And I saw that kind of growing up in the Bay Area, right? At some level, I mean, I, I had early exposure to successful Silicon Valley executives and they weren't, they were very successful. They might be on, you know, cover of a magazine. They might have millions of dollars, but they weren't happy. No. So, so then you're, then you're decoupling those concepts. I don't believe that if I am successful, I will be happy. It's like, I have a choice and I have to set up circumstances to be happy. Yeah. And, I, and I may be successful or I may not be, I don't know, but those are not the same. And so yeah. if you can decouple them, I think you have a much better approach to how you can go out and get your day-to-day -day work done. Yeah. Because then it comes back to what do you focus on, right? And yeah. I talk to my kids about this all the time. Like, they're like, well, what should I think about this test? I'm like, don't think about the result of the test. Think about what, what preparation did you do? What were the inputs? You can control inputs, but you cannot control outputs. So don't worry about it. Focus on what you can control. So like, that's a lot of where I spend my time. I'm like, I can't control, I can't control whether or not 
BPX is going to divest all its gas wells. Can't control that. Yeah. Like that was unfortunate for us, but it was something that happened. Okay, got it. Move on. Can't control that. Like I can control how I approach the next opportunity and I can approach how I prepare for that. But there's so many things that you can spend a ton of cycles on that you can't actually influence. Yeah. So energy management for me is a big piece of this. Like, where am I putting my energy? And then, and then you touched on something as well, like finding that time for stillness, mm-hmm. right? Like the, you know, if you're a Ryan Holiday fan, like the, the stoicism. I stuff. do the stoic journal every morning. Yeah. See, yeah. I mean, finding that too, where you're able to just quiet, yeah. quiet the outside influences, find an opportunity to focus. It sets you up much more effectively for the day. And then, and then those days build on themselves over time. And you end up like accomplishing quite a bit more versus being like, I'm just running around and I'm constantly, I don't, if I don't have purpose and I don't have a series of things that I need to get done that build, then I won't ever achieve whatever my bigger goals. Yeah. Man, we're going, we're going deep here. <laughs> I, I can literally just talk. This is awesome. I can talk yeah. about all these kind of things forever. Yeah. Um, it's funny. So one more thing. And then yeah. We'll yeah. Right. Are you familiar with Rob Deerdeck, skateboarder? No. No. So he was on MTV for a long time. Okay. Uh, he does a podcast, but with Rob, just by himself. There's okay. no guests. It's just him talking. Yeah. Uh, he's done very well for himself. I think his net worth is like half a billion dollars now or something. And so he's actually doing a lot of he's got a venture studio thing that he's doing. Yep. Uh, and has leveraged his media kind of presence into kind yep. of like building all of that. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is exactly what you just mentioned, energy management. Yep. And so he literally has... Essentially, he's built out like a spreadsheet or some software to where he has like, I mean, every minute of his day is planned out. Mm-hmm. All the things that he needs to spend his time on, all of his priorities. He doesn't drink. He doesn't eat sugar. He yep. hasn't missed a day on his diet in like 400 days. Yeah. And he's like that. He was like, I've been, he's like, I'm so happy because I do every single thing that I know that I need to do that is getting me to my long-term goals. Mm-hmm. He was like, I have not missed a single day where I haven't won the day yep. in over a year. Yeah. And he's like, that is just truly like sustained happiness and joy. Yep. Because there's nothing left to question. No. And everything is planned. You've and and again, kudos to him. I think that's that's a a different level. It's a totally different level. I'm not I'm not there yet. Yeah. But I but I also think that that in some ways is like he's focused on what he can control. Right. Yeah. He's not saying my happiness is tied up with whether or not I get another, you know, incremental hundred million dollars or not. Yeah. He's like, hey, these are the things that I care about. I've made my priorities and I'm acting on those priorities. Cool. That is that is true wealth when you can actually define how you want to spend your time, who you want to spend time, you know, yeah. which people that you want to be with, what are your priorities, right? He's achieved that. He doesn't need to be a billionaire. He's not gonna be, I think this whole uh like the marginal value of dollars starts to go down pretty directly once you hit certain levels. And I think that uh, this idea that just chasing more and more and more is gonna yield some higher level of happiness, I don't buy it. Like, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot to unpack within that, but the point being is he's able, that guy is, and I don't know him, but he's able to define, these are the things that I prioritize, this is what's gonna drive my happiness and, and act on it, which Well, is awesome. think about it, if you had uh, all the money in the world, Yep. right? You didn't have to work. Yep. What would be your purpose? Like, where would you spend your time every day? Would it be with your family? Would it be philanthropy? Would it be building something because you know it's going to change the world? Would yeah. it be just building something because it's fun? Would it be racing cars? Like, I think about it all the time yeah. because if that answer is too different than from what I'm doing today, then you're then I'm probably off 
totally. Yeah, and I think that's so on a personal level for me, family is is first, right? Yeah. And I've got I'm incredibly fortunate to have um, a loving and supportive wife who's amazing, and three kids. But I also have an extended family of both, you know, both sets of grandparents for the kids are still around. I have good relationships with them. And then sort of the family I've chosen who are yeah. the people in my life. And I I feel very, there's plenty of people who have more financial gains than I do. I also feel incredibly wealthy in the relationships that I have. Yeah. Like when I got into business school, one of the things that the Derek Bolton writes is kind of like one line about like, what about you got you in? And what he wrote for me was, um, your ability to build and maintain relationships is what's going to help you thrive at Stanford. Yeah. And for me, I thought that was an incredibly astute, like he, I'm like, wow, he got me because for me, that's where, that's where the, so much joy comes from. So I love working with other people to solve, solve hard problems and build things. I don't want to do it all by myself. I don't care about the credit. I don't care about that. Like that's not actually as interesting to me. But if you've been on high performing teams when like everybody's aligned and it's working so fun, right? And you're you're accomplishing more together than you ever could do on your own. Yeah. And then you get to share all of all of that sort of that that win together, but also just the hard part of going through it. That's so fun, right? I love that. And so and honestly like that's what I get to do. So relationships are I think undervalued early on i'm currently reading uh johnny rockefeller's uh 38 letters to his son this was never supposed to be a book it was just they compiled them over the years and i re-released it and it's it's insane i love it it's one of the greatest things i've ever read i keep rereading it um but i I think about what what are the things that i want to leave my sons right they're still young five and three but um whether it be things that i teach them as they're growing into men or things that you know uh, certain life lessons um, and one of the most important things is relationships. Yeah. I mean, it really, I mean, we, we've built a community and yeah. we're very fortunate to do that, but that's through building one-on-one relationships, brick by brick by totally. brick, Yep. you know, and actually genuinely caring about people and helping them with their career and with their business. Yep. And I just can't tell you how important that is. Cause without that, I mean, it's all about who you know in this world. It's, it, I think the ability to build something with someone is yeah. a really powerful thing. It's super powerful. And and when you do it and you get the joy from like that's a source of joy for me. Yeah. And and that's where I want what I want to do is I want to do things that bring me joy, yeah. right? And and if I'm doing that with somebody else and we're building something and and again like there are real problems in this world. Yeah. So let's go solve real problems and and let's do it with together with other people. And that sounds a little like maybe that's too, you know, sort of hippy dippy Silicon Valley like, you know, but but the truth is, when you do it, it's so uplifting, right? Yeah. And you show, you you bring people out and you show them what they can do together, which is which is oftentimes more than they believe that they can do on their own. And I think that's one yeah. of the things that I I love is the ability to help. Like sometimes I feel like I see more potential in people than they do in themselves. And this is a, I think I do too, almost to a fault. Yes. So this is, I have, I have a wonderful head of people operations who constantly is like, you can't fix every broken wing. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's been a really helpful source of feedback for me because I do feel like I can be helpful and that's not always right. And in many cases it's not, it's also probably not the place that I should spend my time, but I but I feel that commitment to other people. And I really do, again, I get joy out of helping make something better. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that hits home. Yeah, I uh, I think a lot of times I find like um, somebody, you know, it's like a diamond in the rough and it's like I could potentially have more belief in them than they have in themselves. Totally. And so I try to limit myself to just giving them encouraging words and advice and stuff along the way instead of yeah. trying to roll up my sleeve and that's I mean, and I turn I them into what I think you're, they you're far be. more evolved than I am. But, <laughs> but I think that that's something that, too, that I've had to I've had to learn about myself is that yeah. there's a finite amount of time that you can put into those situations. And yeah. and at some level, everybody's independent. They get to decide what they want to do with their yeah. lives. Who, who am I to say who you should be, right? That's right. So so what was the, so you're out in California, you're, yeah. you, you've, you've uh, done the venture capital thing at least twice at this point. Yep. Do you roll right into Kelvin or? Yeah, so started Kelvin really with an idea around using a lot of the, the new sensor data that was coming, because this is again, lots of in, you know ubiquitous watches, mm phones otherwise yeah. like lots of sensor stuff that was coming together yeah. but also a recognition that with compute storage costs going down we were just going to be able to understand the physical world differently than ever before and be able mm -hmm. to measure it and like kelvin is kelvin because lord kelvin used to say to measure is to know okay so there's an element of this which is like how do we really understand what's happening out there and we started our first oil field application literally we took android devices put them in plastic boxes and we zip tied them to a bunch of pump jacks outside of Ponca City, Oklahoma. And what was the what was the first use case? What were you It was about how do we understand sort of what's happening with the pump the beam pump itself, like okay. and the motion detection. So you think about it, you you yeah. had wells out in Oklahoma. You've got these well whispers, right? They can go out, they can put their hands on different yeah. parts of the pump. They understand how the vibrations, what do they mean? So you you take that information and you start to think about it, like hey, can you can you capture that on a persistent basis? Because it's only captured when that person's out there, right? Yeah. And and starting to use that as an example of like those types of relationships around motion patterns, vibrations, and otherwise, like they're informing what's happening, you know, with that system. So we started with that, and it and it frankly started to work um, more so than we sort of probably realized it would. So for the purposes of like production optimization, mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah, so, so that's yeah. kind of where it began. Playing around with stroke, choke, all that kind of stuff. All that good yeah. stuff. And 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 the more that we evolved into that, we started to realize like that problem around understanding of uh, that physical system, we could, do, we could do a better and better job of that as our software got better and better. Because for us, it was all about pattern matching to derive an insight, right? And mm -hmm. based on that insight, you take an action. So it's pretty simple to say, but the truth is a lot of times folks don't, they're not watching that system enough or they don't have enough awareness to be able to really understand what's happening all the time. And we started to be able to do that. So began with some small operators there. We got a, a lucky break, frankly, with some folks at BP and began to show what was possible, not just around kind of one lift type, but as we started to evolve across a broader set of production systems. So into plunger lift, and we just kind of kept rolling. But we also realized was that um, there were limitations just around if we were only, if we're gonna continue to do this with hardware and, yeah. and services yeah. and software, which is, <laughs> which is really kind of what we were doing from the, you know, from the get-go. And what I, what I started to see was there was more and more information that was coming out of these systems that was just data. So if you could gather the data appropriately, you could start to understand how to control the system better than it was before. So we ended up making a big strategic decision that we were gonna actually move away from the hardware business. And so that was hard, right? That was one of those really difficult, and, and, and again, it was informed by the fact that 
Two, they don't call it easy wear. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like that's one. And the second is a conversation I had with uh, a big controls company who basically said like, hey, we're getting out of the hardware business. And I was like, what are you talking about? And why are you doing that? And they're like, we're not big enough. I'm like, you're not big enough? Like, are you kidding me? You're, you're like 100x bigger than we are. Yeah, we don't have enough scale. It's Apple, it's Foxconn. We're going to use commodity stuff. We're just not going to co-build our own. Yeah. And I was like, oh gosh, we can't do this anymore. So it was like those moments of awareness. Mm-hmm. And But as we did that, what we started to realize was then we needed to make sure that our software was robust and awesome. And, and really, again, fo- back to the entrepreneurial piece, like focus on what we were the best at. And mm-hmm. we understood how to connect to these systems to be able to not just read information. There's a lot of folks out there that are pulling information out of these systems and starting mm-hmm. to stitch it together. But our insight was that's necessary, but not sufficient. You actually have to read and write back. You have to be able to, like, for you to recognize the real value of this these types of insights, you need to be able to act on them and then measure, did it work, did it not work? So, that so you're moving us- from sensors to essentially control automation. Control. Yeah, okay. so we decided like, we're a controls business. Like we're a software business that is going to be able to connect these existing, oftentimes disparate systems together, but make it a lot easier for the best engineer to come through and be like, I actually can build an application now to run this part of the field differently. So for us and our business today is all about applications optimizing assets, okay? Super simple to say. So multiple apps within a single application, you deploy it on different assets. Yeah, and you can run it as, I start with an, a basic application that I'm going to optimize, you know, some part of the production process. Could be a beam pump, plunger lift, doesn't really matter. But but there's an engineer on that team who's like, I know how to run this really well. And I want my day-to-day tasks of like what I am doing to optimize that. I want that to be done for me. I want the software mm-hmm. to do it so I don't have to. So now what we're doing is we're solving what is in my mind like still the fundamental challenge that this industry has, which is there's not enough engineering time, okay? Full stop. Every engineer that I talk to in the field is like, I don't have enough time to get my stuff done, right? How do you solve that? You give them a tool that actually allows them to do their job more easily, that uh, that actually frees them up, becomes a force multiplier for their day-to-day. And and once you've started to show what's possible, you can begin with real basic applications, kind of if this, then that types of offerings. But it gets more interesting as you start to look at this as not just a single asset, but as part mm-hmm. of a system, right? And you start to look for applications that can take in new information. I can take in reservoir data and I can take in other, you know, other activity from parts of the field and I can feed that in. So I'm now looking at this as this living, breathing, physical system that can be controlled in a way that wasn't possible before. And that's kind of where we where we see this evolving is these these applications are becoming more and more ubiquitous and we're enabling a whole bunch of engineers to build this stuff. And that's the other really fun part mm-hmm. about this is we want we want to give great tools so people can build. And if you are if you are the best person at compressor optimization in the Permian, well, goodness, like you should have a, you should be able to create an application around there that helps optimize a bunch of reciprocating compressors. Great. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we make that easy for you to be able to be successful? Because that's something that has been really powerful is the more that we can empower the engineers, we can mm-hmm. say like, take your best engineer on their best day. What do they do? Right. 
if we know what they're doing and we can help them do that job, it frees them up to work on other more important things. And we start to address, you know, one of the earlier comments was, if you have 88% reduction in enrollment in oil and gas jobs across the top schools in this area, you have a huge problem looming. So you better be capturing and codifying what your best engineers are doing, because if you don't, they're going to retire at some point or they're going to leave and go somewhere else. What does that mean for you? Yeah. So so we've just we've we've come at this with this. Uh, originally, we had ideas around, hey, we can build better models and we can do these things. Now we're just like, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just empower your best engineers. What are they doing? Like, let's get them winning. Because by the way, there's this huge other challenge, right? Where you've got CEOs of all these operators. You, you know, you obviously know a lot of these folks and they're talking about, I got to increase production. I got to drop my operating costs. I need to hit my ESG goals and I need to stay safe all at the same time. And you're an engineer and you're like, what do I do? Like, how do I balance? Those are four potentially conflicting objectives. What do I do? Yeah. We need to give people tools to actually solve these real problems and to make them to recognize that every engineer has a different set of problems and is trying to solve. And and every field is a snowflake to some degree. Every well has its own characteristics. So like honor the fact that there's difference in that, but give people tools that actually allow them to use that knowledge that they have and potentially then augment it with other stuff. Like a lot of what we're focused on today, I mean, AI is everywhere, right? We, we think there are limited applications, but there are real applications mm-hmm. of AI in this world. They are wonderful when they augment human understanding. They're not just going to go and like figure all this stuff. Like <laughs> this generative AI stuff is not just going to figure out like how to optimize this set of wells. They're not, it's not going to do it all by itself. So instead, come up with ways in which you can empower your engineer, give them better tools that are fit for purpose mm-hmm. to be able to actually drive yes you can drive better production and you can reduce operating costs and you can be able to address esg goals and you can do it safer but you're going to have to use some technology to probably make that happen because you're not going to go get it to go hire a whole bunch of new folks to do that so are you guys still focused on is it mostly production optimization and engineers or so are what, what are all the various uses yeah so so what we're finding right <laughs> now is sort of the 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 CEOs are interested in this in a big way because it allows them to achieve these big goals that they have. But the true users are sort of twofold. One are production engineers who are able to use applications to manage their day-to-day. And that's oftentimes in upstream production, but we're actually finding now engineers in other sectors that are starting to be interested. So we've got some interesting opportunities now in mining and in process, you know, different process industries. But there's also this group of builders, right, who are creating applications. And and those are traditionally more software engineers. Mm -hmm. They may be somebody who has an interesting model that they've built in Python that or they've got something that they built in Excel. And they're just trying to figure out how do I take this thing that that has potential energy because it works. I can see it working in simulation, but I can't operationalize it. And we want to we want to basically allow that potential energy to become kinetic. We want to take a model and turn it into an actor because you know what? Actors always make more money than models. Right. <laughs> like so. So we want that. We want that change to happen. And we want to also do it in a way that's safe and secure and scalable because 
you can't just have a bunch of models running around and operating in these in the field without there being the appropriate set of like basically guardrails. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we've done from a control perspective is make sure that we know which application is running, what decisions are being made, what is the state of the underlying asset, what changes are being made, are they within bounds? Like all this stuff that's frankly like down in the weeds mm-hmm. that the engineer, the software engineer and the production engineer doesn't necessarily care about. They just want to make sure that things are not going to break. They're not going to be in a position where there's a problem, but they don't want to have to learn all of the ways to code into these existing systems. They just want to use whatever their current format is, could be Python, could be Excel, to be able to create something. And then we can take care of helping to package that and turn it into this application that can have real impact on the operation. What are some of the most common things that you guys integrate with other other systems and stuff that engineers use? Yeah, so today? so in day to day, we'll we'll talk to the PLCs, the RTUs, the stuff that's kind of on site yep. that's managing wells. In other situations, if we're talking about sort of completions customers, we're 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 working within potentially within the van to be able to connect to the different pumps that are operating there. We're also connected to the SCADA systems because every one of the changes that gets made can can needs to be recorded back like that still is where we see a lot of the information go back through and then it can push back up to the historian so we end up in this world where our our software sits at the edge in a in a node that can be on existing hardware that they may already have out there but it also has to connect back to the cloud and so that there's this world of we'll sit within an AWS instance of a customer that is trying to figure out how they can take models that they've built in SageMaker and push them down. Like, great, we can connect to those systems and be able to bridge to the existing software that they're already using, the existing infrastructure that's already in place. So we're trying, we've really simplified that whole role so, so that your operating technology, your OT team is comfortable with the fact that this is gonna work within the bounds and is easy to use. But your IT team and your folks who are coming at this from more of a cloud data science perspective, they get to use the tools that they want. They wanna build mm-hmm. in Jupyter Notebook and they wanna push it, right? Awesome, like we can package that. We're just trying to simplify it because these worlds have been very divided. There's lots of IT, OT conversations historically. Yeah. But we look at it as this is realizing real potential between subject matter experts who really understand how a process works and software developers who are able to articulate that in something that can become code. And when you start to put those things together, you're, you're building really powerful applications that can drive impact in these operations. What are the biggest challenges for you guys? For us, it's a lot of getting, getting customers comfortable with the fact that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we see today that folks are very interested in starting to gather data and push it to the cloud, right? And there's a lot of orientation around that. The next piece though is how do you use that data in the cloud to actually help drive better decision-making? And and then that's where we typically get involved is Mm -hmm. you've, you've made a commitment to do some degree of digital transformation. You're interested in seeing what's possible with your information. And then we can come in and help open that up for them. This is, a, this is a journey, right? You've got some folks who are just now getting comfortable with the idea that they can push their data up and that these things are possible. So what we try to do is make it really easy to show what, what we can do. And so we find, you know, we have operators, you know, we just announced uh, this big enterprise deal with Santos in Australia. 
And they were super excited about the idea of getting to autonomous operations, which, by the way, sounds kind of scary, right? It's like, what does that really mean? Is that robots running the field? And the truth is, it starts with something that's how do I how do I capture and codify what do my best engineers do, right? Mm -hmm. So that they don't have to go and and do that in the same way that they're doing it today. But now I'm putting that information into software so that I can learn, right? And I can I can measure how decisions are being made. And the system can start to be able to learn for itself. Like we talk about this sort of journey from automation to autonomy. Like in automation, I'm setting the rules. I'm telling this thing what to do. Okay. But as you start to move to autonomy, it begins to explore and start to learn for itself. And this is the system that we want to be able to help enable. That takes time, right? That's not something that is going to happen overnight, you know, and Waymo is a perfect example, right? If you're in San Francisco, there are, quote unquote, driverless cars. Waymo is driving around right now, but there's still somebody at the wheel, right? And, and it's learning how that person is driving. And it's just getting those reps of like, okay, in these situations, what does it do? In these situations, what does it do? It's, it's learning. And yep. then over time, it starts to enable that person to have less time. You know, they don't have to watch the road. They can take their, you know, they can take their hands off the wheel, but their eyes are up. And then they can take their eyes off the wheel, uh, eyes off the road, and they can look down at their phone, but they're still sitting there. But at some point in time, they don't need to be in the vehicle anymore. These are the steps that it takes with mm -hmm. a lot of these operations where you just like, let's learn how it's being done today. Let's, let's observe the best practices of best engineer on their best day. And then once you have that, then you can start to scale it and augment it and take it across various parts of the operation. It's a really interesting time, especially in the past few months with just like all of the mergers and the, and the consolidation. Yeah. I don't think we're done. I think it's still, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a few more big ones that kind of come out of left field um, for better, or for worse, whatever that's worth. Um, what do you feel like, what do you feel like are the opportunities with, with what you guys are doing on the, in terms of the merger side? Or how does that? No, uh, not necessarily. I'm just saying more so like opportunities for for technology, kind of broadly with what you guys are doing. Obviously, you and I were talking about tons of AI stuff. Yeah, AI stuff. But I think there's a huge amount of ways to start to think about oil and gas as a much more integrated system. Yeah. From from the upstream side to the midstream side to the downstream side, and and that is breaking down a lot of the historical silos that have yeah. existed. And we can see where there's potential for that because we are we're already seeing folks who are integrating okay i can see how i, I can see how, where my you know i may have a pressure spike in a in a part of the field and and i can regulate other parts of the field to sort of normalize that and get it back in so that so that when i'm actually hitting my distribution point i'm staying within bounds so we're starting to see examples of like where that's possible but for me, I look to I look to parallels in kind of the financial services world, and I think about high frequency trading, okay, and how we've worked our way from a bunch of individuals who are making decisions, control decisions around buying and selling things, to a world where it's all become much more programmatic, and there's system level awareness around how are how are certain movements over here and one part of the market impacting how I'm trading over here. I look at that, I'm like, there are parallels to what we will see in oil and gas. Like these are physical systems. There are, there's gonna be changes that are happening down hole. How is that going to then inform how we produce that hydrocarbon over time? And mm. how do we integrate that more together as this, as this complete solution that will then probably inform 
supply chain decisions in certain areas and potentially, you know, come up, like how do we hedge certain strategies? Like it, it can become much more integrated and that's not how it is today, right? Yeah. There's interesting aspirations for some of it, but that's where I think you start to see like some huge efficiencies. And then the other piece is just, I think there's tons of interesting new technologies that are going to be applied to traditional production. I was, I was saying earlier, there's, um, I was, at this conference, Climate Impact, a couple of weeks ago in London. And Vicky was talking about what Oxy sees in terms of some of the potential gains, right? And today, the normal, you know, you're normally getting basically 10% recovery out of a lot. If of you're lucky. These, if you're lucky. Yeah. Well, there's pretty good evidence that some of the, you know, the more advanced EOR techniques, you can get to 19%. That's amazing. Without punching more holes in the ground. Without punching more holes in the ground. So... My belief is that technology continues to find ways to innovate um, mm. or there are opportunities for technology to be used in innovation to solve very real problems. And we're looking at that where 10 to 19%, that's a huge potential gain, right? Yeah. So I love that. And I love the idea that then again, back to sort of my original impetus for some of you know, my, this, this, the work that we do. I want that to be operationalized and I want it to be scaled and I want it to continue to allow us to have as much energy independence as we possibly can. Which will continue to provide cheap and abundant energy for Americans and for the rest of the world as we're beginning to uh, continue to export. What, what, a billion air conditioning units are going to come into this world in the next 15 years? It's wild to think right? about. It's I wild mean, to think about. It's possible. Yeah. Right? And what does that mean? Like, how are you going to power that? So that's where I believe that we have to look at lots of different energy options, right? And the more that we can use our oil and gas capabilities efficiently to provide that energy, that's fantastic. Yeah. And we're going to have to augment that with lots of other things. Like, there's, there's going to be alternative sources that will continue to develop. We just have a lot of demand. Last thing in closing. Yeah. And you can interpret this however you want. Okay. What are you most excited about? Let's see. At this moment, I really am I'm excited about how the energy industry in the US is is consolidating to try to address some some big macroeconomic concerns. And I think there's huge efficiency gains and I also think there's the application of technology that's going to be really powerful. Like I get super excited about some of the work that Oxy's doing. I fundamentally believe that you're going to see more and more innovation out of the super majors. And, and the consolidation does help with that, right? It's going to help more resources get, get utilized. And I think there's going to be big efficiency gains. So I get, I think there's more technology to get used here. It's very early innings as far as I'm concerned around how we're, how we're utilizing much of the software, more advances in AI, but also just changes in material science. Like I'm an optimist. I believe that like we're going to be able to do things more efficiently, more effectively uh, in the future. And it's got, you know, we have to, right? There's, there's just, there's no shortage of demand. No, especially on the material science side, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, I think finally people are starting to kind of wake up and pay more attention to it. Even two years ago, it was um, less than uh, 1% of venture capital was going into material science, but yep. yet you had this demand for could be EVs, which I think we're starting to see kind of cool off with yep. some of the announcements that have happened recently yep. with GM and other uh, automakers, but the, the geopolitical implications of cobalt, uh, cobalt graphite, cobalt. Yep. all that stuff being in China, like 
So I think you're gonna see, I still have to say, a lot more innovation and probably a resurgence of American manufacturing as yeah. we're slowly bringing down the cost of manufacturing Absolutely. here stateside. Yeah. I actually talked to a group, um, we're really plugged into the Bitcoin mining scene. Um, I do believe that Bitcoin mining is uh, energy infrastructure and is driving a ton of innovation in the space. Mm -hmm. And one of the main issues, once again, is that all of the ASICs Right, which used to be GPUs. So yep. the miners are made in China. Yeah. Except one group now. Hmm. Some some of the former uh, Palo Alto Networks guys yep. have leveraged their network and are now manufacturing ASICs in the US. They designed hmm. their own chips and nice. uh ASICs, and it was wildly, wildly expensive to do so. And yep. that's why nobody was getting into it. Uh but now, guess what? All these American miners don't have to rely on yep supply chain issues, shadiness of deals, yeah. money flows, geopolitical risk, yeah. all of that, right? And that's that's exciting for us too. We're we've seen a lot of these sort of new manufacturing opportunities in the yeah. US. And that could be energy related, but it can also just be I have a process that I want to do more efficiently and you know, we sell control software. Like we care about being able to control that as efficiently and cost-effectively as possible. So we look at that and we're like, hey, those are opportunities, right? Those yeah. are folks that we can talk to, to be able to actually say, you don't need to buy from the old school existing infrastructure side who are going to sell you this really expensive box yeah. with some services and some crappy software. Like, let's use commodity hardware with some really good software and see what kind of things we can do together. We like that as well as another kind of interesting new opportunity for growth. Man, this has been great. This is the longest podcast we've done in a long time. Really? Yeah. All right. No, this is like really exciting. I could easily talk for another three hours. I know most of you are probably getting to your destination on your commutes. We're going to go ahead and wrap it there. Peter, thanks for coming. Hey, it's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. This was great. Guys, take two seconds, share this with all your colleagues, and we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.